Okay, good morning everyone, nice to see you. Would you like to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 please? Father, we've been uh, singing songs that rehearse the Christmas story as well as speak warmly of your wonderful love. And that uh, gripping short video clip reminds us, Lord, poignantly of the meaning for Christ's birth and life for our sakes. So, Lord, as we... Uh, reflect on your word this morning and throughout the Christmas season we ask that your Holy Spirit would continually lead us more and more into the truth. Kind of truth that sets us free. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I asked you to turn to Mark chapter 1 because we're going to look at the Christmas story this morning. And so I thought this would be an appropriate place to start, looking at the Christmas story. Three candles on the Advent uh, circle remind us we're well into Advent and it's a little while now before Christmas, not long now for Christmas. And everything's going and going and going, as Jim was saying, it's busier and busier. I love this time of year though, and I love the carols. The carols come from a tradition where preachers wrote carols in order to teach their congregation's theology. That's what they were written for, especially for the, those who couldn't read and write very easily and didn't have access to books. They wrote carols and they wrote hymns in order to teach them theology. And so much good, there's a little bit of dodgy theology, but we can take that with a pinch of salt. There's some good theology in the carols, good stuff. They pick up these wonderful stories. And I thought I'd read um, the Christmas story as far as Mark is concerned. Did you enjoy it? Shall I read it again? Because there isn't anything there, is there? Have you ever wondered why? It's really odd, isn't it? If you're writing a biography of anybody, you surely would include something about their life. Mark begins with Jesus at the age of 30. He only lived to be 33. He left out a lot, didn't he? In fact, if you look at his gospel, you find that most of his attention is focused on the last week of his life. Very interesting that. So I thought, you see, that we look at the Christmas story, but one of the problems about trying to pack it all into sort of Christmas Day is that you get the whole thing truncated and there's a lot of it. There's a lot of Christmas stories. So I thought we'd look at a little bit of it today and get you thinking about the bigger story. Some Christians have a problem with the fact there are four Gospels. Because they don't all match. They don't all say the same thing. In fact, at times, they talk about the same incident, but they clearly are different accounts of the same incident. So Christians can get a little bit edgy about the nature of the four Gospels. Well, the fact that it's four is deliberate and not accidental. We believe the scriptures are God-breathed, so God knows what he's doing, so four is right. 
And any differences between them are deliberate, not embarrassing. They are vital, important things. And we need all four to gain a whole picture of who Jesus is. Turn with me to Ezekiel, chapter 1. Another one of those obvious passages that jumps to your mind when you talk about Christmas, isn't it? No, it isn't. Ezekiel, chapter 1. Way back there in the Old Testament. One of the longer ones. If you do the flicking through the Bible bit, you you could actually find him, because he's quite long. I'll say he's on page uh, 858 on my Bible, but that's not a lot of good to you. What page is it in yours, sweetheart? One. Seven, eight, six. Seven, eight, six, if you've got a church Bible. Seven, eight, six. We won't go through um, Ezekiel's fantastic vision. It's a rather dramatic one in chapter one. But we just pick it up in verse 10 because he's describing living creatures that are coming in this vision towards him. And um, it's not necessary for us to know the background of this. We'll just look at this couple of verses. Their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. You got that? Unless you're a devotee of um, sci-fi movies, you're going to have a problem with that pit, aren't you? With uh, the face of a man at the front. To the right is the face of a lion. To the left, the face of an ox. And to the rear, the face of an eagle. You just can't get your mind around it unless you're one who's accustomed to working out the imagery on sci-fi movies. But what's clear is if I'm standing at the front and these creatures are coming towards me, I will say confidently, ah, they have the face of a man. But you see, Matt, sitting at the back there, would say, Charles, you couldn't be more completely wrong because, in fact, it's not the face of a man, it's the face of an eagle. What are you thinking of? But everyone on the right here would say, well, I don't know what you two are looking at because you're both wrong. It's actually the face of a lion. When the folk over here smugly will say, well, clearly the mulled wine has got to the rest of you because it's none of those three. It's actually the face of an ox. And we would all be right. And we would all be wrong. Wouldn't we? The only way to see the living creature in all its entirety is to walk round. See it from each angle. Isn't that right? Otherwise, what you're seeing is right, but it's not the whole truth. If you were to go to a court and give the truth, you are told to give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because they know full well that you can be economical with the truth and give a completely different view if you leave out certain things. To to get the whole picture, you need the whole story. To see the whole living creature, you have to go right round. To get the whole picture of Jesus, you need all four Gospels. And they are different. In fact, sometimes they are very different. They couldn't be more different. So, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. A little more familiar for the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. Those two chapters deal with the Christmas story. Now, this is a bit of audience participation, okay? 
You up for it this morning? You ready for it? Okay. You've got to tell me some of the things you find in Matthew's account of the Christmas story. You don't need to read the whole thing because you know it very well, but just flick your eye across it. What are some of the things that you find in Matthew's account of the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus? You've got two whole chapters there. I'm not going to give you ten minutes to read them. You know them very well. But just remind me of some of the things you find in Matthew's account. Come on then. A genealogy, right. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. We'll find a genealogy, the bit we never read at Christmas because it's too boring by half, but actually it's incredibly important and wonderfully inspirational. We'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, we've got a genealogy, okay. That Mary was engaged to Joseph, pledged to be married to Joseph. But tell me, Liz, is the story mostly about Mary or is it mostly about Joseph as far as Matthew's concerned? It's about Joseph. Mary's mentioned because clearly she's important. But actually, the emphasis in Matthew here at the end of chapter 1 is actually Joseph, isn't it? Not Mary. Interesting. Anything else about this particular account? You're doing well so far. You're going through. Good. No trick questions here. Don't worry. You, can't, you can almost not get it wrong. Go on. Go for it. What, is it, what else here do we find? Who else appears in this story? Wise men appear in this account and only in this account. Right. Wise men from the East. Magi or something. We find it hard to translate not only the word, I think, but to get the meaning of who these people are. Different commentators suggest different things. Clearly, we don't have a kind of category that fits this one, like an accountant or a politician. They don't fit into something particular. So we've got to guess a little bit. But wise men is one we are familiar with, so that title would do us fine at the moment. Could be kings, could be magi, you know, but we're not quite sure, but it's something along those lines. Okay, who else appears in this story? Herod. Herod. He will appear somewhere else in the story. The next time he appears in the story, it will simply be to give the date. In the time when Herod ruled. That's it. That's the only time he's mentioned in the other account is to give a date, but not so in this account. He actually gets a big part to play, wretched man. He gets a big part to play. Okay. So we have a genealogy. We started off with that. Where does a genealogy take Jesus and connect him back to? Please tell me that. Where does it connect Jesus to? Who does it connect Jesus to? Abraham doesn't go any further than Abraham and comes forward from Abraham. Notice that comes forward, starts at Abraham, comes forward and passes through who? Who are the most important people in this account, this genealogy? David, that's right, absolutely. He's one of the key points. Lots of the kings. So this genealogy is a genealogy that comes forward, starts backward and comes forward to Jesus and connects him with Abraham, who is the father of the faith, as far as a Jew is concerned, and King David, the great king, and lots of other kings. That's what it's doing, it's connecting him with those. Then in the next part of the chapter 1, we talk about Joseph, not Mary. Chapter 2 comes to Herod, who is the king at the time. 
and we have wise men. We could call them kings. They're clearly important people, whoever they may be. So whether they're kings or not, not important, they are actually important people. So what you have in Matthew's account is a fascinating laying down of the life of one who traces his line back to the kings of Israel, the forefather of the faith, and you have him contrasted with another king, King Herod. And at the end of chapter 2, you find King Herod, who appears at the beginning of chapter 2 to have all power and all authority because he can do what he likes and even kill all the baby boys if he wants to. At the end of that chapter, you find he is dead and the little baby boy, who was under such threat of being killed, is alive and well and living in Nazareth. Interesting, isn't it? So right from the beginning... Matthew is telling us that this little baby boy is the rightful king of all the earth. In contrast to unrighteous kings, he's the rightful king, but he's an unrighteous man. He does all kinds of wicked things. But there's a huge contrast here. And who comes and visits this little baby but very important people? Very important people who've dropped everything and come a very long way to see him. A very long way. Now, we often think that there may be three kings. Well, there could be, I don't know. I have no idea how many there were. It doesn't actually say. But people assume it's three because they think there's three gifts. I'd like to question that assumption. On the base of this, you are a wise man living in Babylon, which is three months' walk away, about a thousand miles, 900 to a thousand miles, take about three months to get there. You're setting out to visit a king. We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. They've come to worship a king. My suggestion is there's a mob of them, because you don't take three guys on their own down that route. You'd be, you'd be um, hijacked before you travelled a week. You need strength. So maybe they had lots of servants. I'll go with that. But there are certainly not just three people, because that would be very dangerous indeed, especially if they're carrying valuables. Stand and deliver, wouldn't it, in those days? You were, that's why they travelled in caravans, for protection. So my thought to you is there's more of them, but it doesn't matter. Three will do. But what would you bring if you were coming to a king? Tell me, what would you bring if you were going to come to a king? Anything, wouldn't you? Treasures, wouldn't you? What did Queen Sheba bring when she came to King Solomon? She brought everything. Spices, gold, fragrances, oils, metals. She bought a whole trainload of stuff, didn't she? Actually, she gave it all to him, and then he gave her twice as much back, so she did very well out of it. But she brought masses of stuff because she was coming to visit a king. You bring loads of stuff when you come to visit a king. Unless you happen to be living in the 21st century and you're coming to Queen Elizabeth II in England, you don't bring her a train load of stuff because she's got absolutely yards full of the stuff. So you choose it very carefully. But in those days, they brought masses of stuff. So my suggestion is they didn't bring three gifts. They brought masses of gifts. But when they got there, 
They selected from all the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, to identify particular parts. So what they brought for the king was gifts. We'll come back to the others in a little while. So Matthew presents the story of Jesus the king. As you read that story, see God's idea of what real kingship is all about. It doesn't match ours, does it? This is the real king who's come to take up rightful residence. And what would Jesus' message be? Repent for the kingdom of God is here. This little baby is the rightful ruler of all the earth. So then we go to Mark's gospel, just in passing as we whiz through on the way to Luke. We'll just pass over there. Nothing in that one. Why? Why is there nothing in Mark's gospel to do with Jesus' birth? Doesn't he think it's important? Is it irrelevant? Actually, everyone thinks, or most people think, that Mark's the first gospel, which makes it even more strange that he shouldn't put it in. But somehow or other, he's written what's the key issue about Jesus' life, which is his death. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how Mark 10.45 puts it. Now, each of the Gospels, please don't think they tell a completely different story. Huge amounts overlap. And they all tell this part, that Jesus came to die. But Mark does so in a very, very direct way. He's telling us this one is the master who came to save. So it opens abruptly and actually closes abruptly. If you had the original ending... You find it sort of falls off the end as if someone's torn the last page out, lost the last bit of the papyrus scroll. Where did that go? Someone used it for firelighting because it seems as if it's dropped off the end. But maybe that's deliberate. You see, because he's telling the story of someone who came to do a task. And in that regard, it's not important to know where he was before he did the task. And it's not important to know where he is after he's done the task. What's important to know is, did he do the job? That's the task. And the answer is, yes, he did. Yes, he did. In fact, Mark doesn't even include a resurrection appearance. Because as far as he's concerned, it's not important. What's important is he came and died. That's the crucial issue. Of course, when Matthew and Luke read Mark's account, they add more to it because they think there are things missing here. And aren't we glad they did? So the focus is on his work. Jesus is the servant who came to save us. That's why the kings, the magi, the wise men, as they come before Jesus with all their treasures, kneel before him and, inspired by the Spirit, pick out one of those treasures as myrrh. To denote that his life will be one of suffering. A ransom for all. So that's why Mark says nothing about his birth. It's not important. Let's move on to Luke's Gospel then and tell me from Luke 1 and 2, massively long chapters. Luke does like long chapters, doesn't he? Very long chapters. What does Luke's account tell us about? What's in it? Tell me. Anything you know about the account from Luke's Gospel? Chapters 1, 2 and a bit of 3 as well. Anything? 
Mary's song. So of the two, Joseph and Mary, Joseph was emphasised in Matthew's Gospel, but he gets a bit part in Luke's Gospel. It's all about Mary, isn't it? He's hardly mentioned. She gets to sing a great song. She gets a visitation by an angel. Wonderful. There's great chunks about Mary. And Joseph is almost completely excluded. What else is in Luke's account then? John the Baptist. He's not mentioned. His birth is not mentioned in any other gospel. He's mentioned in other gospels, but his birth is not mentioned. And he's the forerunner. So who's his dad? Zechariah is an old guy. I say that advisedly. He's an old man, near the end of his life. He's married to a lady called Elizabeth. They're well past it. They haven't had any children, which has been a great disappointment to them, and they're not likely to have any either because they're way, way, way past it. A couple of old people who haven't got a lot going for them open the story. Who else is in the story? Shepherds. Did you know that the testimony of shepherds in the first century was not allowed in court because they were known to be such rogues you couldn't trust a word they said? (laughs) Hard luck you if the only witnesses on your defence were shepherds because they couldn't give evidence in court because it would be run out of court. Aren't they interesting people for for God to tell this most important event to? Because nobody's going to believe them. Are they? They've been on the bottle again, these guys. Too much stargazing. It was a hard job, shepherding. Very, very hard job, which is why nobody wanted to do it. So it was the rough and tumble guys who wanted it. Isn't that interesting? And while in Matthew you have Herod mentioned, therefore instantly to your mind comes a palace and the kings or the magi or the wise men come to the palace and talk to Herod. You have the picture of a palace. Jesus isn't in it, but a picture of a palace. What's the picture you have in Luke? It's the temple, Zechariah and the temple, and the place where Jesus is, is, well, we don't know what it is, do we? We're only told it's a manger he lays in, so we make assumptions there. I'll let you do your own assumptions, but whatever it is, it's not befitting a king, is it? So this story includes a genealogy, and you won't find it in chapters 1 and 2, you find the genealogy in chapter 3. So tell me, to whom does the genealogy in chapter 3 connect Jesus? Adam, straight away, Adam. Abraham, it goes past Abraham, but it goes right back to Adam, as if... Luke is one to say, yes, he's, in, he's connected to the important people of life, but he's actually connected to the founder member of the human race. He is the second Adam. He is an ordinary man who comes from ordinary stock, like we all do. Because you could trace your genealogy back to Adam, couldn't you? You could. It may not go through Adam, uh, Abraham or David or anyone, but you can because Adam and Eve are our forefathers. Because it's artificial to say forefather and foremother. So you say forefathers. So trace it right back there. Mary rather than Joseph. Remember that in that society, women were seen and not heard. I'm sorry about that, ladies, but it was true. Not my idea. That's how 
So it's very interesting that women get such a big part to play. And the people involved are Zechariah, who's an old man, Elizabeth, who's an old woman, Simeon, when they go to the temple, who's an old guy, Anna, she's in her dotage. All old people. And the other folk are shepherds. Whatever else you can say about these people, they are ordinary people. Ordinary people. So the emphasis Luke is bringing is not that Jesus is the king, come as our rightful ruler, but he is a human being just like us. That's the point. So in fact, it's Luke who gives you all the details that Mary wrapped Jesus up in cloths and laid him in a manger. Because that's the sort of thing mothers do, isn't it? You won't find that in Matthew's Gospel. He wouldn't be interested in that. Or John's Gospel. But Luke tells us that. Luke tells us that Mary became pregnant six months after Elizabeth. And they were so joy they got together. It's Luke who tells us that when John the Baptist was born, or the whole village came round and wanted to name him. And John said, no. Uh, Zechariah said, no, his name is John. And they went, nobody's in your whole family is named John. What are you thinking about? He says, no, his name is John. He tells us those details because that's the sort of thing families get up to. All that sort of stuff. He tells us shepherds wandering off, breezing down, finding this little baby in a manger. Maybe that's to distinguish it from other babies who were born that night in this very small town. And so the Magi, wise men, kings, as they go and kneel before Jesus, inspired by the Spirit, draw out frankincense. And saying this man's, this baby's life will be an offering to God, his whole life, full of the Spirit. Then you go to John's Gospel, chapter 1. We surely will read this at some point over the Christmas period, isn't it? Wonderful stuff. The first 18 verses, tremendous stuff. I once saw a couple read this, or not read it, they'd learnt it off by heart and spoke it antiphonally, and it was very moving. This is John's account of it, and you know it very well again. There is a genealogy here, but you've got to look very carefully for it, because it's not a long one. It's a very short one. The word became flesh is in verse 14, but verse 1 tells us the word was with God and the word was God. So it connects those two together and John says, well, he does trace his line back to David and Abraham. Yes, he does, Luke, trace his line back to Adam, but you've got to go back further than that because that's not where he started. In fact, he doesn't have a beginning because in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So his genealogy shows us something very different. You see, Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they operate on a synopsis of all the material that's around, basically portraying Jesus as king and saviour and man, manly, manly options. But John says, we're missing something here, guys. He is actually God. That's why John's Gospel is completely different from all the others. Because his emphasis is to show us that Jesus is God. Would have been hard to understand that, wouldn't it? See that little baby? If you could have got Moses to stand by that manger and say, that's God there, he would have said, no, it isn't. 
wouldn't he? I mean, I'm assuming he hadn't been inspired to know it was, because he'd have said, the God I know is the one who comes down and the mountains melt and shake and seas flee away. This is the one who can accomplish incredible feats. You don't touch God. Moses would have known that, wouldn't he? You don't mess with God. So it's quite a step, isn't it? And John the Baptist appears in this one, he appears as one who proclaims a voice crying in the wilderness, make way for the coming one. And John says something very interesting in verse 31. I wonder if you ever noticed this before. Elizabeth is his mother, and Mary is Jesus' father, and Elizabeth and Mary are related. Elizabeth has had a miraculous birth, not by spirit, but by her husband, but nonetheless miraculous. And Mary has had a miraculous birth without a husband. Not too many other people have had such interventions here. So these two get together to share the insight even before the children are born. And the first person who bears witness to Jesus is actually John the Baptist in the womb. Interesting point. But the point is those two women knew each other. I can't believe they didn't spend a lot of time as the boys grew up. Can you? See what he says here in verse 31. I myself, this is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus, I myself did not know him. Come on, John, you're pulling our leg. You grew up with him. Your mum and his mum were best friends, apart from anything else, and related. You don't live in a very big country. You don't live in a very big part of a very big country. You would have known each other. What are you talking about you wouldn't have known him? Here's the thought for you. I wouldn't have known who he really was, God in the flesh, unless the one who sent me to baptise with water tells me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist is saying, I didn't know who he was, I just thought he was a special man. But I didn't know he was God in the flesh until God said... That's the one you're to talk about. That's the one who was to come. And that's what John says. Otherwise that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? So when the Magi are kneeling before Jesus, in the house notice, not the stable, in the house, they go to the house where he is. So this is sometime later. They're kneeling before him, worshipping him, and they bring out of their, all their treasures, they bring out myrrh because he will suffer. And that's Mark's gospel. They bring out frankincense because his life will be a fragrant offering to God's spirit-filled life. That's Luke's gospel. And they bring out gold because gold at that time was the most precious material. The Holy of Holies was completely lined with gold. It's a place where God was. So they bring out gold to represent his divinity. This is God in the flesh. They take out from their treasures, Matthew, myrrh, frankincense, and gold. So what does this mean? As we think about Christmas, it means that Jesus is our ruler, the one who comes to take charge of our lives. And he is the one whom we must obey. And we do so not reluctantly, but willingly, joyfully, obediently. It reminds us that we are all part of the same people, the unity of God's people, because there is only one king. 
Wherever we are in the world, one king, one group, that God's people are one people. Mark tells us that Jesus will be our saviour. So we completely depend upon the sacrifice he brought that we might know life in all its fullness. And what's more, it gives dignity to our own service. We want to be like him too. He came as the master to serve. So anything you do this year in any kind of service is a reflection of the one who came to serve. And you do so because it is like him. So take every opportunity you can over this Christmas period to serve one another in every way. Look at the things you send people as a gift to them and encourage them, serving them. When you have people round for a drink in the evening or round for a meal at a certain point or gather folk together, you are serving in the same style as the Master. Luke tells us that Jesus is our friend, a man among men. Someone who understands what it is to live a human life. He knows the ups and downs. He knows the pressures Jim spoke about earlier on. He knows the pressures people are under. He spent 30 years watching that pressure crushing people. And he says, I've come, follow me. Walk with me. And this broadens our understanding of evangelism. It's all about one person sharing with another person about this one who is the friend of sinners the one who knows what life is all about. If ever the Christmas season gets too much for you and you feel like going outside and pulling your hair out, you'll find Jesus out there already and he's going, I understand what you feel. I know what it's like. I've lived where you live. And John tells us that Jesus is our God and we must worship him. I'm so glad your carol service next week is not 11 o'clock in the morning. It's completely the wrong time for it, isn't it? has to be four o'clock or later, doesn't it? Because somehow there is a mystery, isn't there? And I think the darkness helps us, as it were, to capture something of a mystery. We talk about the words magic and so forth, but we're meaning, what we're meaning is mystery, isn't it? We're thinking, how is this possible? And I think the darkness and candles and things has helped us to create an atmosphere in which we say, Lord, this is beyond our ken. We do not understand it, but it's true. It's true. Worship the Son of God. And knowing that enriches our worship many far. So as you enjoy going through the Christmas story that you know so well, don't be afraid to see the differences the Gospel writers make and the way they tell the same story differently. They're doing so for a particular purpose so that instead of looking at one view and thinking that's all there is, I invite you to walk around and get a good view of who this wonderful Saviour is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, that's exactly what the shepherds were told in a wonderful summary of it all. They said this, Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And brings all four views into that one little sentence. This is this baby. Let me pray. Father, we enjoy Christmas as we enjoy all the year. It's great, Lord, what you have done in the world so long ago and so far away that still has impact and power and vibrates with mystery even today. 
that the birth of your son so long ago still can change people's lives today, still can change the world. And as we rehearse the details, Lord, and sing them and create opportunities for people to hear them, these same things, Lord, open our eyes to see this wonderful, wonderful God, this wonderful Messiah, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Saviour, come to earth. It is beyond our understanding, Lord, but we believe it to be true. Your word tells us categorically our lives have been transformed as a result of it. Our prayer is, Lord, that our greater understanding of these wonderful truths this Christmas will mean that we will be more able to share that glorious truth with others, that they also may see the light, come to the one who is life, and have life in all its fullness. For Jesus' sake. Amen.